Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast Book Club, the strand of the Folklore Podcast where we examine books of interest to fans of folklore and chat with their authors. Today, reviewer Hilary Wilson looks at the book Cunning Women by Elizabeth Lee. 17th century Lancashire is a dark and mistrustful place. Ten years after the notorious Pendle witch trials saw ten accused witches hanged, young Sarah Howarth and her family live as outcasts in a ruined hamlet. The inhabitants of the nearby village despise cunning folk like them, but their services, healing balms, herbal remedies, will always be in demand, and they have a way of coming to know all the village's secrets. A chance meeting sees Sarah become acquainted with Daniel, a young man from the village. In him, she sees a clever, caring man. In her, he sees not the strange, dirty outcast he knows he should, but rather the strong young woman coming into her own. As they are drawn closer together, a new magistrate arrives in the area to investigate a spate of strange deaths befalling the villagers. Inevitably, his eye falls on Sarah's family, and his hand carries a burning torch. In the face of persecution, something as fragile as love seems impossible. Cunning Women is a fiction title published by Windmill Books and voted one of the best books of 2021 by readers of Grazia magazine. Its author, Elizabeth Lee, won the Curtis Brown Creative Marion Keyes Scholarship and her work has been selected for the Wimentering Project and Penguins Right Now Live. Here is her conversation with Hilary about the book. Hi, I am here with Elizabeth Lee, and we are here to discuss your relatively new book, uh, Cunning Women. So first I just want to say I'm happy to get to actually see you. It's lovely to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to uh, actually chat to you. Yeah. So to get us started, I would love to just ask you, you know, what inspired you to write this book? Uh, well, um, it was actually something very specific. I was um, I watched a documentary about the Pendle Witch trials um, and I was just so sort of horrified and fascinated by the story um, of this particular family who were involved um, and they were um terribly vulnerable really they were incredibly poverty stricken they were ostracized from the local community um, and also kind of feared by the local community because they were believed to have this kind of magical powers um, and in fact they believe themselves to have magical powers as well um, and I was just really interested in that kind of friction in their lives about um, being so incredibly vulnerable but also considered to be powerful um, and what it would have been like to live that way um, so that was what inspired the story really. So with the uh, Pendle witch trials you know that was a very particular case and you had actually set your book right in the aftermath of that yeah so there was a lot of you know feelings and worry about you know, witches in the air, and there was a lot of actual targeting of them. Yeah. Um, in the very beginning of your book, there's actually an incident where the uh, government of the town changes. Yes. So the, the entire structure of it begins to 
be a lot more serious about tracking down these witches than it otherwise was. Um, yes. Was that something that, you know, in your research you, was, you were finding was very common? Uh, yes, um, it was really because um, it, there was just a general atmosphere of fear and paranoia um, about magic. It was something that everybody, you know, it was just accepted that, that magic existed um, and it was part of everybody's life and it was unpredictable and it was dangerous and it could affect your life very badly so there was there was a, a sort of everyday underlying fear that everybody lived with um, and obviously that was um, the king himself was particularly afraid as well um, and so then the magistrates were very much encouraged to um, go on a witch hunt and you know if you were a, an ambitious magistrate in England in the 17th century then you know it was very good for your career um, to find a few witches <laughs> so um, that was really um, where that kind of inspiration came from um, that you know you, you, you could have these very ambitious magistrates and, and some of them you know were also very godly and genuinely believed themselves to be doing God's work genuinely believed that these people were evil and they were rooting out the devil in these little villages that they were going to. Um, so, yeah, so it's um, tragically really based on historical detail. Um, one of the things that really interested me about the book and about the nature of your magical belief during that time, uh, in the modern time actually, you know, is the fact that, you know, these cunning women, these witches, they also were Christians. You yes. Know, they, they also <laughs> believed themselves to be Christians. And even though they would potentially want to worship, they would not be allowed to because of what they were practicing. Yes. Yeah. Um, certainly a lot of the, particularly the cunning practices, because generally um, the cunning folk were considered to be a kind of benevolent sort of magic, whereas witches were considered to be a malevolent kind of magic. So uh, cunning folk would generally kind of, um, you know, help you find things that you've lost and make you better if you were ill. And um, if, if you thought you'd got a curse upon you, they would find out who had cursed you and tell you how to break the curse. You know, as the witches were the ones who were taking the things and making you you ill and cursing you um and so a lot of the cunning folk practices some of them did use use prayer um as part of their kind of cunning um practices um to help people um but also there was a, um a strong link you know particularly in Lancashire where the where the book is set it was sort of a bit of a Catholic stronghold at, at this point and again there was a lot of kind of um friction about about that and one of the things that the magistrates were told to look for um, was people who were not attending church people who were not getting communion because they might be having kind of secret catholic services or they might just be ungodly and and it was actually illegal i think at the time to not go to church and not not have communion and that kind of thing so one of the things that um <clears throat> happened in the Pendle witch trials um one of the things that they were accused of was that they all they had a meal um and invited some of the local people many of whom ended up at the trial um and the brother in the family stole a lamb for this meal so that was one of the reasons they got into trouble but the main reason they got into trouble was because it was good friday i think it was good friday and what they should have been doing was being at church but what they were doing was having this kind of pagan or 
Catholic meal at home um, and they weren't being, you know, good Protestant Christians at, at the time. So there was a very strong link between, you know, that that kind of flow of sort of pagan belief and Christian belief and different types of Christian beliefs was all kind of quite, quite muddled up, really, I think, at the time. Yeah. That's extremely interesting. <laughs> yeah. But the, the cunning folk in you know, your story, it begins you know, with our main character looking for the devil's mark on her yes. younger sister's body, you know, having yeah. found the, one, the mark on herself you know, previously, which essentially damns her to the fate of having to follow this. Yeah. You know, so I found that interesting because so often, um, as was discussed in a previous episode, it was women who were accusing one another of these things. It yes. Not always yeah. men. You're looking for these marks. So if you essentially found it on yourself, you'd be stuck in this. And I don't think that it occurs to a lot of people that this is not necessarily a fate that everybody would want. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, and I think that's certainly in terms of, of the book that is um, Sarah, the main character, that is her main conflict, really. is She, um, you know, she believes herself to be born into this life and to have these powers that she's inherited from her mother and her grandmother um and on the one hand you know she's just a teenage girl on the one hand she wants what everybody else has she wants a normal life she wants food in her belly you know she wants shoes on her feet she wants to have a family and live a a sort of normal life but there is also a part of her particularly you know when life's a struggle and um she gets angry that you know she's kind of drawn to this feeling that she has this power and she can use it um to guide her life um and that's her main struggle really is whether she wants kind of to embrace this power and but also there's a kind of darkness in it that she doesn't doesn't like and it brings out a darkness in her that she doesn't like um or whether she wants to kind of have this sort of safer more normal kind of life and then whether that would have been available to her anyway um but she definitely for her younger sister she definitely wants to protect her from this kind of this fate that she sees that she has but at the same time her younger sister seems to be a bit drawn to that dark side of things she has a a certain degree of wildness to her yes basically yeah she doesn't (laughs) entirely seem to understand the implications of you know what that life would bring because to her she's just seeing her mom being able to do these absolutely incredible things yeah she can cure migraines which is a gift that I wish one of my friends had (laughs) um absolutely (laughs) she she has these amazing abilities so there is a certain attraction to that. And one of the things I really loved about the book was that you did show the townspeople, you know, surreptitiously using (laughs) these services and liking these services. And, you know, if the cunning women were no longer able to practice them, then where exactly would they go to get these things? Mm, Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, that, I mean, Again, that is very much based on the research, really, is that um, cunning women, well, cunning folk were just part of your kind of average village life. And if you were, you know, ill or, again, if you'd lost something or you 
felt you had a curse on you or you wanted to protect you know your harvest or your animals you know um the cunning folk is where you would turn to really because it it was kind of a more available option than um a kind of an official doctor um so most you know most people would have gone to the cunning folk sometimes they would you know if they didn't like their local cunning folk they'd walk to another village because they preferred their, their kind of cunning folk but um yeah uh, yeah that's that's again part of the conflict of the situation I suppose is that they you know they they are sort of tolerated by the village um because they're needed by the village um but they're kind of considered sort of dirty and a bit wild and they're looked down upon but they are also feared and then when the new magistrate comes and kind of taps into that fear and people are afraid for themselves because he's looking everywhere for evidence of people who are not behaving as they should be and not going to church and you know so they then obviously have a ready-made um scapegoat I suppose as well don't you but at the same time you know if you get sick you still need to be cured don't you so oh certainly yeah yeah, so there are a lot of examples uh, throughout the book of you know, actual practices um, that you know, were done by cunning folk. Uh, yeah. So one of the things that was interesting to me was the use of the familiar mm. that the you know, mom in the family has a hair that only yeah. she can see. Yes. But at the same time, if you happen to spot a hair out of the corner of your eye, then that's definitely the familiar there. Yes. So she can be implicated in a number of things. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. The use of the hair was really interesting to me um, because of the fact that we don't as commonly in the U.S. associate hairs uh, with with practitioners of magic. Um, The cat has kind of taken over for that. Yes. Um, yeah. but more traditionally, we did have these scavenger animals you know, being seen as familiars. Yeah. And the ability that she had to, you know, send Dewspringer out to you know, collect yeah. information. It yes. It's really interesting to me. Um, that along with Annie's affinity for foxes. And yeah. uh, later, the non-cunning folk character, Daniel, being able to calm wild horses. Yes. Yeah, I thought that was just a really fascinating thing. Um, you know, I'd mentioned to you in conversation previously that we see people who are able to interact with animals and calm wild horses or soothe the dog. You know, we see yeah. that as being a bit of a magical gift, but then that's not seen as a negative. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. Being able to play with a fox kit would be seen (laughs) a little bit of a suspect. uh, Yes, yes, it's interesting actually when you brought that up because I, to be honest, when I was writing it, I I don't really think I thought too much about about that. I mean, um, but when you mentioned it, then it did make me think, of course, that there's a kind of, well, I suppose the animals that um, the the Howarths, the um, cunning folk family are associated with are kind of they're 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 kind of wild animals um whereas Daniel is a farmer and they're kind of you know they are exerting their control over over the animals um so um I suppose there is a kind of parallel there yeah yeah um and the um 
you know, again, because they would obviously have been afraid of um, animals that were associated with um, the cunning folk and the witches because they might be familiar and they might be um, uh, able to, they were supposed to be able to kind of, you know, go and like give people curses for them and that kind of thing. So um, again, there was that level of kind of superstition and fear that surrounds everything about the family, really, including, I suppose, the animals that they're associated with. Yeah. And the curses that the uh, cunning folk were not supposed to be casting on people because they're the yes. healers. They're not exactly. The yes. Ones who are doing that. Yes. Well, I think um, you know certainly for uh, Sarah's family in the book, they you know they they will do some benevolent healing. But um, if you want a curse and you're going to pay for it, then they will also quite happily do that. Um, and also, you know, they're not above sort of being tempted to use their powers if they feel like they've been hurt or you know Sarah's mother in particular if she feels like her children have been hurt then she um you know is is quite keen to go and sort of wreak havoc in the village if she thinks that she can um so there is a kind of <laughs> ambiguity about how they use their powers and how they see them I really felt for her with that you know, because you really did do a good job of showcasing just the crushing poverty yeah thank you the fact that that poverty was not always the case for them yeah so to be thrust into the situation through no fault of their own and just trying to make the most of it it was Mm. a very moving thing to read Mm, thank you I mean it's you know and I'm I mean obviously this is set 400 years ago and this is a particular set of people who were particularly vulnerable um, but I do think that still, actually, you know, we live in a world where, you know, sometimes people don't have that security and they don't yeah. they don't have a network or, you know, even sometimes for people who who live a life that appears secure, but something can go wrong. And, you know, that can be an experience for a lot of people, really, that kind of ending up living on the edge um, and not having that that protection. I mean, say particularly in the book um they're incredibly vulnerable really they have no kind of adult male in the family they're um just scratching a living as best they can and you know because they're women because they're poor because they're ostracized they have very little in the way of security and and protection Um, and they really are just kind of you know like I imagined Sarah's mother kind of waking up every day thinking right you know we just get get through another day get the children fed everybody alive in their beds at the end of the night that's that's her aim every single day that's that's what her life is you know yeah and even when you're attempting to go out and to get a job and to you know, do the right thing as a male in the family yeah being associated with you know the cutting folk that's enough to essentially damn you yes yes it's a vicious cycle isn't it really because they you know and then like john <clears throat> who is Sarah's brother in the family who is 15 I think at the time of the story feels like he should be the man of the house and he should be out earning and he goes out he tries to get work he can't get work all he gets is um you know treated badly and then he ends up stealing things because he wants to provide for his family and then this becomes more of a cycle that you know nobody would trust him because he's the one who's stealing things so um again it's just a 
vicious cycle for them really but then the mom also doesn't want to teach him the craft because he doesn't yes. have the mark so she yes. doesn't want to damn him to that when yeah. he would be open to learning it because at least then that would be some kind of a trade yes exactly and also it would be a, a role in the family wouldn't it I think he feels kind of very much sort of caught between the two worlds where he can't he can't behave um as um, a man um he feels is expected to um you know as as the villagers would do because those options aren't open to him but he also isn't really part of this kind of little club that they have in the family because he doesn't have the mark and he doesn't have the abilities or his you know his mother just tells him he doesn't have the abilities and doesn't you know doesn't doesn't um set him to work in that way so he kind of falls between the two places really yeah yeah he was a very sympathetic character to me thank you just his the, the whole situation that he was trapped in was just fascinating to me yeah and I really, I really felt for him. He uh, certainly was trying his best. Thank Not you. Not everyone yes. in the world was trying their best. In the... No, and you know, even when you're trying your best, sometimes you don't do the right thing, do you? And sometimes he doesn't do the right thing. But you know, he, like you say, he is trying. So yeah. yeah. Where did you turn to do the research for the book? Well, I mean, again, because <laughs> I hadn't really planned to write historical fiction, and let's like say I just saw this documentary. Um, and got excited about the idea so I just I did a bit of research then I just jumped in and started writing um but then I had to stop quite frequently because I would bump up against things that I didn't know um so some I mean luckily for me it's obviously a period where there's a lot of information there's a lot of information about Pendle in particular and because that's um what I was basing it you know on that was what the inspiration was um so there was a lot of information that could be found about, um, you know, the cunning practices and and that kind of thing. But there were there were sort of little details that I got stuck on that I became obsessed <laughs> with. Things like um, um, there was there's a scene. I think it's just a line in a scene where I wanted to describe people's feet walking past and I could, I just got myself into a real tease about what kind of what they would wear on their feet. You know, was it? boots or was it shoes or was it clogs or was it laces or buckles or and, I, and it, that I found really difficult to find out and you know it was lockdown so I couldn't go to any museums I did some kind of virtual tours of museums to find clothing and that kind of stuff that was really helpful um but eventually I did find it out but I lost days days to kind of <laughs> <laughs> trying to find out you know if if they were royalty it would have been very easy to find out oh, what they certainly. would have worn on their feet but if you're you know like a peasant girl and a farmer then not so much so yeah it's more <laughs> yeah. interesting to try to figure out what the peasant folk were wearing though and mm, not all of us definitely. would end up being royalty back then <laughs> no exactly exactly but um yes I suppose it just doesn't get as recorded as much does it but um oh, it no. was a kind of various there were there were books there were um a couple of sort of expert one of my friends is um is a is a herbalist um oh, and she is an expert in all of that so she was um incredibly helpful if I was doing any kind of herbal stuff with the um cunning folk practices and she would um uh, be able to help me out with that and there was a historian that I spoke to on Twitter that just like randomly <laughs> sent a message to saying I'm writing this book can you help me out about this and bless her she did um and you know um a bit of google and you know it kind of all sort of all came together in the end 
<laughs> I think that we're really lucky that we're living in a time when we can actually just send messages mm. to people about things that we're curious yes. about. Yes, yes, exactly. That's so how much other people's right expertise. Being, yeah. it's so much right now is being digitized, which is also just you know, utterly amazing. Yeah, that. yeah. yeah but I really do think that the amount of research that you did shown through, there were a myriad of little things as I was reading that really you know, spoke to me as being authentic for the time period. And Thank there were some closed descriptions that <laughs> definitely were fascinating <laughs> me. Um, yes. The discrepancy between you know, what Sarah's family were wearing and what yes. Daniel's family were wearing. Yes, yes. And that's, I think, again, which again, I think is still true of, of our society in a way, is, um, you know, that is the, one of the main things that separates them from the village, particularly um, the women, the mother and Sarah and Annie, because the women would have been very demurely dressed in the village. They would have, you know, their hair would have been completely covered um, and they would have had layers on. Um, whereas these girls are kind of, you know, they've got this kind of wild hair. Like it, it would have been scandalous, really, to have your hair out on show. They were kind of running around in bare feet and, and rags and, you know, mud. And I do think that that instantly shows you as other doesn't it if everybody looks a certain way and you don't look that way um then you know you are instantly separated um and I you know again I do think that that is something that still can exist um in the world so certainly the like one of the things that really drove home to me just the level of separation was you know, Daniel's family is the, they are the family to be in town. Uh-huh. You know, yeah. They actually have a farm. Yes. They, they are this immense wealth for the area, which yeah. if you really are looking at it from today, isn't that much <laughs> what they no. have <laughs> no, but, absolutely. You know, for that particular spot. It is an awful lot. Yeah. And when he's talking about like what they would pay a milkmaid you know what the milkmaid would wear and it from our perspective it's just so basic yeah so little from his perspective it's so little yeah but you know comparing it to sarah and her family just all of a sudden it's clean clothes you know it's a bonnet it is yeah yeah immense wealth you know, yeah. wealth that would allow you to indulge in things beyond just worrying about where your next meal is coming from. Yeah, and yes, that's, absolutely. That's incredible. You yeah. know, that is when you step back and really look at it, it will absolutely floor you. Yeah. And it just fascinates me. I mean, like wealth for Sarah's family is finding a particular stone with a hole through it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Those little things that could yeah. actually fetch you a penny, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It just really, it gave me a lot to think about in terms of class divide and mm. what a big um, part that plays in the accusation of people as witches. Yes. Yes. And, you know, again, historically, that, that was the case. That obviously, I mean, it, it wasn't exclusively um people who were poor that were accused but if you um had you know access to finances and influence you were much more likely to um you know to to get away um whereas you know 
those people who are just absolutely powerless really in that society um when they find themselves in that position they they have no influence they have no control over what happens to them um you know and that i think that was it was one of the things that i sort of wanted to portray in the book because you know we know a lot about the pendlewitch trials because um it was all rec- one of the clerks recorded it all so so we know what happened um but obviously he was he was a man yeah. <laughs> and he was in quite a powerful position um and you know we have these accounts of these trials but they are all always in the voice of somebody who was observing it and never in the voice of someone who was living it because those people um had no power they didn't have um access to having their voice heard later on um and so i i think in a way this was sort of my my attempt to give voice to those people to try and um imagine what it you know what the experience of it would actually have have been like I mean the book isn't actually about a witch trial in itself but it was that kind of vulnerability and paranoia and superstition what it would have been like to be on the receiving end of that Uh, I like the fact that your book was not about a witch I think that (laughs) thank you I think that you gave more of a voice and more of a feeling for what effect those trials would have upon the population beyond the actual drama of the trial itself Yeah, you know, I think that by making it a bit of a romance, like you did, yeah, yeah, empowered the voice of those people and the experience of those people more than just focusing upon the last mm. days of their life. <laughs> yes, you? yes. I suppose it's you know it's about the whole person, then, isn't it? You know, as well, it's not just about the one event that happens to them. Also, of course, narratively, it gave me a lot more freedom if I didn't make it a witch trial because. <laughs> <laughs> then the end would have basically been written for me um and that wasn't the end I wanted to go with so <laughs> um you know yeah, that, uh, I suppose that was... would be a little bit of a, a downer for absolutely uh, writing yes, in that genre <laughs> <laughs> exactly and I you know as you know if you've read the book I don't shy away from like a bit of gritty writing but um oh, that certainly. was a bit bleak even for me so <laughs> yeah. yeah certainly but there was a certain aspect of hope throughout it as well yeah, I'm glad you said that. Thank you. Because, um, I mean, I, I felt that. I mean, it is, say, I <laughs> I tend not to shy away from kind of exploring the dark side of things when I'm when I'm writing. You know, I'm actually a very cheerful person. I don't know why. I've, <laughs> I'm, kind of, I'm kind of drawn to kind of this sort of seedy underbelly of the world. Um, but, you know, I, I did want there to be hope for Sarah all the way through you know to me it is Sarah's story really and I wanted there to be hope for her all the way through and I wanted the you know the reader to feel like there was hope I didn't want this sense that she was doomed from page one um so (laughs) I'm really glad that you said that (laughs) there were a few portions in it that were incredibly uh dark and yeah you know shocking for what they revealed I don't want to get into them because they're spoilers and I love the readers to have a similar jaw-dropping moment that I did (laughs) but throughout the whole thing I was deeply deeply concerned about what would happen to Sarah and by the end of it I felt like there was a great deal of hope and a great deal of compassion you know for you know for her and belief in the idea that people will do the right thing when given the choice you give them mm. the chance to, mm. and yeah. though the choices were hard, I thought that they were ultimately a very positive thing. 
Mm. It really, I thought it was a really powerful ending. You know, I thought that Thank the you. message of the book was very powerful and not as bleak as one would expect a story about potential witches. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Again, I'm glad you said that because I kind of thought the ending was, I don't know, it's sort of bittersweet, I suppose, and that it might not be what the reader is exactly hoping for. Um, but hopefully it's not what the reader is worst fearing either um and I you know it's thank you <laughs> it's it's Sarah's story and I wanted I wanted Sarah to have some kind of agency and and potential and hope you know for her life as she goes as she goes through the book um um you know or even though <laughs> the circumstances of her life are so so difficult um and, it, you know, they get more difficult, I suppose, as the book goes on. But um, I'm glad that you kind of I'm glad that you found that little thread of <laughs> kind of positivity <laughs> buried in it, um, because it is there. I think yeah, it is I there. really clung to it. I think that it was a very I, I felt like it was a very accurate telling of what this time period and what opportunities would exist for people mm. who found the devil's mark on them. Yeah. Not all of yeah. the people who found that were you know burned at the stake or hanged no no and you know if you were I mean the, the issue really for the family is this terrible poverty that that they're in you could be um rich and secure and you could find a mark on yourself but as long as you kept your head down and you know your food is on the table every day then you you don't really expose yourself to um being um vulnerable because of that whereas for Sarah's family you know because they they this is what they turn to to make a living because they really don't have any other options so um that is where their kind of vulnerability comes from really yeah. so in are you thinking this... about moving forward continuing to write in the historical fiction vein yes I think so they say although I'd um because Cunning Women is the first book I had published it's not the first book that I wrote though <laughs> I'd written two before um and um one of them was a kind of science fiction futuristic thing um and the other one was set in the 80s which you know to you will sound like historical fiction but <laughs> I remember it so you know I didn't have to do any research for that um so I never really thought of myself as a kind of historical fiction writer but now I think because you know I the, the themes that interest you tend to be the same so you probably will explore similar themes in in different books that you write and I am you know I'm interested in people who are trapped by situations I'm interested in people who are vulnerable people who are poverty stricken I'm interested in you know the situation of women in different time periods and and you know how restricting or not that is for them um so I think you know historical fiction really does kind of lend itself to exploring those kind of themes so I, I think now yeah now I'm kind of bitten by the bug I can't imagine uh, not writing it really well it's not a bad thing <laughs> to be bitten by at all <laughs> absolutely so yeah. can we expect anything more from you soon any uh, well, new projects happening? I I hope so. I mean, I am um, working on something I dare not say too much because my agent hasn't seen it yet. So, um, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know what she's going to think of it, but um, I am working on something at the moment and it is historical fiction, but it's um, a different time period. Um, so really, in terms of the story, totally different, but in terms of the themes, some similarity, I suppose. Um, hopefully it will one day see the light of day. <laughs>
Well, I certainly hope that it does, because I'll be looking forward to reading it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Hilary. If I if it does, I'll send you an early copy. <laughs> oh, excellent. But, um, thank you very much for your time and uh, oh, I look awesome. forward to getting to read your new book soon <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much it's been so nice chatting to you thank you for having me anytime thanks to elizabeth for her conversation about cunning women and to hillary for reviewing the title you can find the review in the book review section on the folklore podcast website at www.thefolklorepodcast.com The Folklore Podcast and The Book Club are independent podcasts aiming to collect and preserve folklore materials for the future, alongside other projects such as the Folklore Library and Archive and the Folklore Network. Find out more about all of our work on our website at www.thefolklorepodcast.com. Please tell your friends about our content and share our posts and episodes in whatever online spaces you use. You can follow us on Twitter at FolklorePod, and we're also on Instagram and Facebook. We try to avoid adverts in our shows to keep to the topics in hand, but this comes at a cost. If you want to help us continue, please visit www.thefolklorepodcast.com support, where you can find links to our Patreon page and other information. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>